Welcome to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are conversations with leading commentators and experts in architecture and construction. And today we're joined by Sheila McNerney, Urban Regeneration and Development Professional with an impressive track record in the industry. And we'll be talking about development plans in terms of policy and, more importantly, strategy. Sheila has led major planning and regeneration projects in both the public and private sector, in construction and in development, and has extensive experience in the public, private and third sectors. So welcome, Sheila. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Since I mentioned third sector, everybody gets private, everybody gets public. What's the third sector? Do you want to just let us in on a secret? Thank you, Austin. I suppose third sector is a bit of an old-fashioned and clunky term. I think what I'm just trying to get across is there is the pure private sector, which is working for a contractor or a developer. There is what we all understand as the public sector, which is maybe local government, which these days is very different from years ago, um, or central government. Third sector, I'm trying to convey the idea that there are indeed sort of structures and partnerships over the years that have been put together that maybe bring those together. I think the rhetoric is that the private sector are forced to be more social and the public sector are forced to be more commercial and profitable. So it, it is rhetoric. I think the structures have different objectives but still have to operate actually in terms of bringing financing and dealing with plans planning processes, dealing with the commissioning of work. So so everybody has to do that. I just think uh, maybe maybe it's a reflection of the decline of the public sector as directly delivering. So they have these different arrangements with the private sector. Okay, okay. Well, look, uh, you're in Manchester at the moment. We're uh, talking by Skype. Can you just give us a clue? Because I know that you've just left your involvement with Salford, but just as a background, what I ask all our guests to do is just to talk about how you got into this game, if you like. Do you want to give us a snapshot of your education and your experience? Certainly, yes. So, yeah, I'm just about to leave Salford City Council. I've been there four years. If I cast back over my whole career, it would just take too long. But how did I get into this? Well, I grew up in the city of Liverpool. I did a very, very general, pretty average degree. So when I was 18, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. I don't think any teenager actually wants to be a town planner. I haven't met one yet. So I did a very general degree in geography. Um, and I think genuinely because I like history and geography, I didn't want to then go off and, and do something that was a job not connected with the content of what I'd learned a tiny little bit about. So I had the chance to go to... UCL, the Bartlett School of Architecture and Planning in 1983, and I did an MPhil in town planning. Still didn't know what town planning was, but got to hang around with architects. And I just like, I've always liked and been aware of the built environment. Maybe romantically, it's got something to do with growing up in a city where there was indeed fantastic structures and buildings around me. I think that's the romantic idea. I think at the time, in context, I wanted a job. And at that time, in the early 80s having a geography degree maybe you'd go and become a surveyor and I went down the town planning option and then that led to one thing after another which is I think how most careers develop and you never look back so do you want to just tell us about what I mean I don't know whether this is possible but what does your job entail I've been employed by lots of different people over the years, public and private, but what I'm actually dealing with and what I'm doing is always the same. I'm always around the same tables in Greater Manchester or other cities when I 
as a consultant. And what I'm doing is working always as part of a team because I don't think there's any single profession or single leader or star that makes these things happen. I think always as part of a team, just working to bring about development on the ground, on sites, in cities, resulting in building houses, resulting in offices, resulting in new business parks, health centres, schools, whatever it may be. It's the built environment that comes out the other end. And my role most recently as head of development in a growing local authority area has been to orchestrate some of that, deal with developer interests, deal with investors and landowners, develop master plan thinking again which I think went down the tubes after the recession so some of that broader strategic thinking is is coming back into play very slowly in order to guide investment in order for the council to be able to say not just through the planning process or through a land deal but to convey what it wants for its city short medium and long term okay in passing you mentioned master planning which indeed is I mean in many ways a dirty word rather than gone out of fashion yeah I I also read that you're involved in regeneration which is yeah. also the hit word of our, of our time so uh, are you reclaiming these words I, I don't know whether I'm just um, steeped in those words and, and kind of grew up with those words in terms of what my role is what my work is how teams work together so that there may be slightly different words invented now but I think they're aiming for the same thing yeah regeneration became a dirty word at the time and after the recession. Um, I think it was always misused in any case. For me, it's just a word that means being comprehensive. I think it was I think it was at the time of Hesseltine when he actually went to Liverpool, my home city at the time I was leaving, who brought in certain ways of working for not just local authorities, but how you work with the private sector. Um, and I, I wasn't I wasn't a fan of that at the time. But the idea of being focused on a particular area, comprehensive in your thinking about the built environment, businesses, education, skills, social issues. There were whole programmes I worked on which used public money and was used the public money to lever private sector decisions. And it aimed to be comprehensive and to plan using whatever the source of funding, private or public. And that's certainly the story of Manchester, other cities and internationally the word doesn't quite apply. And master planning is... You could fill a room, couldn't you, with the urban design and master planning guidelines that were printed um, some years ago to tell us how to plan places, how wide the streets should be. So master planning for me, again, is about looking beyond a single red line on a piece of land ownership, saying we're going to build something here. It's looking at the whole area. You describe your role as, I'll quote you here, building Mm. institutional partnerships to deliver urban regeneration. So this is much more of, I mean, partnerships is very interesting, but I'm sure that many people and most students entering to the job market don't really realise the layers upon the layers of people involved in strategy development. So again, can you talk us through a kind of typical team and and what you mean? Are you you a liaison role? Are you a mediator? Are you a leader? How How do you see your position in this? I think it can be all of those things at different times in the process and depending on where a project or a set of proposals are up to in the development process. So I think for students, it's useful to learn that there is a development process That starts with, debatably, land ownership. Developers always tell me it starts with a spreadsheet. I like to think it starts with a vision. And then it ends with development. Uh, Those of us involved in construction tend to look at the cranes and think, job done. I'm getting more interested in, obviously, how places evolve once they're actually occupied and people are living there and what works. Because 
Architects and planners rarely go back on a site-by-site basis. Multidisciplinary to me is about different professionals in a team who may be appointed at the time of a development um, getting underway, will require a client to commission and appoint a team. How that works depends on who the client is, whether it's public or private. It's become very, very clunky and difficult for the public sector these days with lots of procurement rules and who's instructing who and what best practices in the industry has changed over the last 10 years or so. And the architect used to be in charge of those teams. We've now got project managers. We've now got design and build where it's the contractor who runs the show and just tells the architect what they need to do at some point. So the relationships between it within a multidisciplinary team where a job is getting done, I think is worthy of looking at and worthy of looking at how it works. When we say partnership, but I'm also talking about that public-private types of partnerships. And again, it, it, just at the current time and in recent years, and having gone back into a local authority after 10 years in the private sector, local authorities have been cleared out of huge numbers of staff from people who have like a memory of how things used to be done so there are only a relatively small number of people within the local authorities that I'm familiar with so a partner is needed to do absolutely anything and we call it a partner you know it might be a contractor there might be what we call, we use phrases like strategic partner, because there are rules about the public sector. You don't just employ your mates. You don't just employ who the leader of the council thinks is good. So there are all sorts of rules about procurement, which again, I've, I've worked with and within, which at first I thought was quite dull, but it's actually quite interesting. Obviously, nobody wants to stand up and say, we're just going to take the cheapest. And what we're looking for is some really poor quality. (laughs) So nobody actually says that. And it's always fascinated me that that is exactly what so many people actually deliver on the ground. Through the process, with all the controls that we have, it it, um, fascinates me. It used to alarm me. It's just interesting now that... um, how the, how on earth has that got built? And people say, who are the planners? Who gave that planning permission? Well, of course, it's not down to the planning quite a lot of the time. It is down to how is the design and build and budget actually worked through in the details and who's been appointed? So if you've only got a budget of, say, $7 million to build a primary school, then we pretty much know what you're going to get. And it's you can get, a, in the north, you can get a pretty decent box which is going to work and be watertight and be warm and work for, say, kids in a primary school. It's not going to be an architectural award winner. But we look in the journals and we do see schools that are being built, even at times of um, limited budgets, that solve lots of design problems and create really lovely environments. And, you know, so it can be done, but you need really good brains and they cost. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, like you say, we could talk about this for a long time. But yeah. let, let, let's, yeah, let's yeah, just quickly yeah. move on. You've worked at various city councils, Liverpool, Manchester, Salford, to name, yeah. to name a few. Since you've been talking about a couple of projects, I know if you can, if you could possibly give us a couple of case studies or what kind of projects you work on, you can remove the names to protect the innocent if you want, but, but yeah. give us the general idea about what your job would entail. I suppose some examples I can think of as a consultant working on what was called a big strategic framework, strategic regeneration framework, some year, not so many years ago, 
in Liverpool. And so I worked as a consultant with a number of agencies that had appointed a team. And my work was to sit down with the council, those different agencies that had the funds. And they wanted a coherent plan for a very large area that was racked with all sorts of issues, poverty, depopulation, um, many, many sites in multiple ownership. So it was a big piece of city thinking to try and guide what do we do next, what is possible. So I led that team and that involved lots and lots of discussions, stakeholder discussions. It involved me leading that team of other disciplines. So trying to stop the architect from drawing things on a plan across all sorts of multiple ownerships and blue sky thinking about how amazing it would be by the year 20, 2050. Working with property professionals who knew the landowners, who knew the price of land, who knew the cost, who had over years developed intelligence around who was selling to who. So those sort of property people are really important. And then transport planners, infrastructure investment, when is that new motorway junction coming? So working with those sorts of, as we said before, multidisciplinary groups of people in a consultancy team, all paid for by public sector agencies who had only a commissioning ability. They could commission things, but they didn't have anybody inside their organisations who did this sort of thinking. Um, and then that had to be mediated through politicians, which is always interesting. And at that time, a brand new mayor came into Liverpool who really wanted to have this document in his hand and wave it about. So that was one piece of work. Uh, more recently, within Salford, within my role, we've developed a master plan for a part of Salford, which includes Salford University and its own land holdings. And We've taken two years. It always still frustrates me how long these things take, but it's taken two years to get to the point where we're just about to launch to the market um, a prospectus which tells them, here are the rules of engagement. This is what we want you to respond to. We've warmed them up for a year. We sit down and talk to them every couple of months saying, you're still interested, aren't you? You're still interested. Um, so there'll be a very formal process, which has taken that length of time to put in place. It's not just filling in a form. Yeah, so this sounds very frustrating. So the idea mm. of, you know, architects coming out of architecture school with wonderful visions of what they can create, the blue sky thinking. Are you saying that this is all a process of compromise and we need to learn to live with the new reality? Or, or is there still scope for, you know, trying to create new master plans? Well, I'm an optimist and I do believe, even if the moment isn't within a particular commission in a particular place at a certain time, that the need to think with vision and to think about how are, the, how are cities going to work in the very long term and what are the big drivers of that change, you know, whether it's technology or transportation or how cities work or are they not really changing? We, we kind of, we've got many, we've got hundreds of years of knowing how cities work and don't work. And, and bringing that thinking, I don't believe is redundant. The issue that I have on a very practical basis day to day is sometimes that that sort of thinking is not required on certain commissions by certain clients. So I see architects having to button their lips. They have to learn to work to a brief and work within a brief. And I think in the development of their individual careers and individual businesses play in different parts of the market as well. I think individuals and businesses work out where they want to be in that market. I think there are limited people commissioning blue sky thinking, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't have blue sky thinking. And there are quite a lot of people commissioning architects 
saying, I need this to work commercially, so don't draw me anything that doesn't work or isn't viable. Okay, so is that what translating strategy into delivery on the ground, which is another one of your quotes, is that, is that what yeah. that means? <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess it does, yeah. Through that process, with all the constraints, I say to people I work with, not always listen to, but I think you still have to say it. Look, we're aiming for, we want objectives in here that make it clear what the quality that is possible and to aim for that quality. And if you don't even write it into the brief, then you're definitely not going to get it. In some ways, we're talking to architects through this conversation, through these podcasts, but it, but it is a wider conversation. But, you know, yes. the, the entire uh, complaint of architects over the last 50 years is that they've been displaced by design, yeah. design and build or by quantity yeah. surveyors and presumably now by people like yourself yeah. leading the team. So, I mean, apart from kind of answering that, um, is there a typical team? I am a fan of the sorts of multidisciplinary teams where the architect is leading thinking and coming up with ideas, solutions and directing things. I've, uh, we, we work, the plan I mentioned earlier in Salford with the university, we, the council appointed the architect as the lead on this quite large master plan. And the architect led that team and subcontracted to the property professionals and said, right, we need you to tell us who owns the land, what's the value of the land, what's the market saying about this area. Um, they appointed, they subcontracted to landscape designers and said, look, when it comes to what the, how the public realm works, you tell us what. And, but the, the architect led that piece of work and we were really pleased with the piece of work and it has their name on it as an organisation and it kind of conveys... Um, it conveys something about what the council and the university want. It took a lot of behind-the-scenes um, discussions, but I'm, I'm by no means replacing an architect. All I'm, I'm commissioning. I'm the client, um, and you've got. But you've got to have a client that wants that to happen. In the latter part of the project, the role switch. So the property professional is leading the market engagement with developers through this procurement process and the architect is more in the background. The architect is not sitting down with prospective investors saying, keeping them warm and telling them um, what's coming through the procurement next. That's a property professional. I have to say, though, that the architects doing that type of what I call strategic work, master planning, as businesses, they are always, their only reason they're doing it is because they want to do the architecture that comes out of it. On that one, it's very frustrating for the people I'm working with because the organisation's giving all the architecture to somebody else who is cheaper. Um, yeah, so it, I think architecture is one of the hardest businesses in any sector. I, I worked in architectural planning practices and I've, I actually set up a business with an architect that lasted two and a half years at the height of the recession or the bottom of the recession. And how... An architecture business is set up and how it needs to be funded and how its pipeline of work is put in place is really difficult. I'm really surprised that there are so, so many still in business. Oh, well, you won't have to wait too long and you'll find out, <laughs> find out that they're not. Yes. Okay, look, there's, there's, one, there's one boring question which I have. Well, I mean, many of these questions have been boring. Your answers have been good. But in terms of local development processes itself or the local development framework, do you want to explain what it is, what it does, whether it works? Well, any landowner or anybody who wants 
to do anything with their land or within a city, you know, the starting point is what does the planning policy document say about this? Where does it sit? Am I going to be able to do housing? Is it allocated for green belt? How is it allocated in that development framework? In Greater Manchester, they have just published um, I've got an ambitious plan which brings together 10 local authorities across Greater Manchester been working on it for years, a Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, which would become the strategic plan for the entire city region, which sets out all of those allocations, where housing growth should be, where transport investment is going to go, how the tram system is going to be expanded. So the development framework is the starting point for anybody looking at what's allowed. Does it work? Um, Well, these plans take years to go through very formal consultations, um, political discussions, as well as public debates of different levels. The plan gets approved, and then through what we started talking about earlier, through the actual real development process that happens, there are individual proposals that might challenge what's in the plan. As soon as it's published, it can become out of date, and there's, there are going to be proposals that come in. But it provides the broad framework. You know, outside of certain sites, you are not going to get consent for residential development on greenbelt land. And then there are all sorts of requirements around an actual planning application now. I mean, it's expensive to put in a planning application to get that full planning consent. There was a time some years ago when cities were desperate for investment and there was a criticism levied that they would say yes to almost anything and maybe we could look at some of that and see the implications of it. At the current time, there is a high level of market interest in Greater Manchester, but within that, it's a core at the heart of Manchester city centre, which partly include Salford as a city centre. I mean, across that city centre, which is not a huge geography, there are nearly 80 cranes at the moment, development sites. There are 14,000 residential units under construction, and there are tens of thousands. Last time I looked, it was about 20,000 just in Salford. Consented schemes not built in terms of residential. So when people ask me, there's a problem with the planning system in terms of delivering housing or development, I, I, I don't get it really, because th- there isn't a shortage of planning consents. So what is it? Well, it comes back to investment. So at the moment, those cranes all repre- in Manchester city centre represent overseas investment to some degree. It represents Homes England own investment in terms of its subsidies into the market. And you could look at each of those cranes in terms of what the investment profile is for each of them. And certainly there is a huge amount of development with all the problems that we talk about. There's two million square foot of office floor space in central Manchester. Yeah, but on that level then, are you saying that people are so keen on facilitating that investment that planning processes somewhat become a little bit more lax or open to ideas that maybe they wouldn't be somewhere else? I don't think I'm saying it as starkly as that. There's a planning process and there's a whole industry around putting together planning applications, the the pre-app discussions. Again, those multidisciplinary teams working for all sides in it through the process. 
Um, I don't think that the planning system is lax in that way. There's a lot required, but there's a couple out of hundreds of planning applications over the past few years, memorable because they were refused, uh, but it's not a lot. What t- it tends to, the, the applications which are non-starters or, or, you know, would never get consent just don't come in as applications, so it's the pre-out process filters them out. But it's very rare for a planning committee here to actually do that dramatic thing of turning it down at committee. Right, okay. Uh, it's, ha- it's happened a few times, but um, for very particular reasons. Right, so on that point then, is there is there something, I mean, a pre-app is an interesting case in point, but is there, are yeah. there do's and don'ts for a developer, or more particularly maybe for an architect, hoping to get a scheme through, what would you recommend should be a, a recommended process to all the, all um, the wheels? In both Manchester and Salford, there's a long tradition of engaging with people like me, or it's kind of, even before you engage with the planning process, there's a formality to a pre-app, when, uh, and you have to pay for pre-apps now, so proper formal pre-apps with the planning authority can be preceded by quite a lot of discussion with other officers of the council who will give much more informal advice as to what they need to put together. And in a city like Manchester, like I think in any place, the property industry is very incestuous and everybody knows everybody. From your inside knowledge then, uh, is there a simple recipe, and well, it's, it's an impossible question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is there a simple recipe about why some proposals succeed while others don't get off the ground? What would you say to an architect is the one key element that will give their proposal the best chance? Proposals with no evidence of viability or investment behind it will not get passed, will not get off the ground. So you've got to demonstrate that um, all the basic credentials are there in terms of where the red line is, what the proposal is, what the uses are. If it's residential, it's kind of how's it going to be managed, how do ground floors work, and then a myriad of design requirements, depending on what site it is. The final question, I suppose, is uh, you've now left that world behind. So what, what next for you? On a personal level, I actually want to research and write more and understand more exactly about what we've been discussing because I've had many years of practice and I'd like to bring that practice into some further discussion and further academic work so I'm very much hoping to go back to the Bartlett and actually do another MA in architecture and history because I just thought at my stage in life and what am I actually really really interested in Going back to when I was 18, it wasn't geography. I did go and become a town planner, but it's strange, isn't it? I was hanging around all those architects at the time, but I didn't really speak to them. And I'd like to spend my time really just researching academically for the MA in Architecture and History and understanding all of that. I did begin a professional doctorate at Salford, um, and I was really, really interested in the relationship between the architect and the builder historically. So, so where that comes from, kind of culturally and historically, why the architect always blames the builder, why the builder's got no time for the architect. And it goes way, way back into the historic beginnings of, of how we actually build.
so that's personally what I want to do and talk more about it. <laughs> perfect, perfect. All right. Well, I'm, 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 um, and spend less time with developers and investors well, who are just trying to convince you. Yeah. Well, I, I understand that yeah. desire to move away from the uh, the dirty business of uh, development and getting into the clean atmosphere of academia. All right, and Sheila, thank you very much indeed. Very, very useful. That was Sheila thank McNerney. You development specialist providing some fascinating insights into the world of backroom planning decisions. If you want to subscribe to the Professional Practice Podcasts and listen to our archive, please follow the link on the website on SoundCloud or iTunes. Until the next time, many thanks for listening. Bye-bye.